Welcome to Global Crossings, a podcast produced by the Global Leadership Institute at Boston College. As part of Northern Ireland at Boston College's Leadership Fireside Chat Series, Minister Diane Dodds, MLA, Minister for the Economy, sits down with Dr. Robert Morrow, Director of the Global Leadership Institute at Boston College, to discuss her leading role in the Northern Ireland Executive, her work to restore Northern Ireland's economy, plans to engage economically with Great Britain, Ireland, and across the Atlantic, as well as her vision and her party's vision for Northern Ireland. Minister Dodds is a Democratic Unionist Party politician. She served as a member of the European Parliament for the Northern Ireland constituency from 2009 to 2020. She previously sat in the Northern Ireland Assembly from 2003 to 2007 as MLA for West Belfast. In 2020, Dodds returned to the Assembly as MLA for Upper Bond. Opening remarks provided by Mr. Andrew Elliott, Director of the Northern Ireland Bureau. Enjoy the podcast adapted from a previously recorded webinar on Wednesday, January 27, 2021. Welcome, everyone, to the latest uh, Northern Ireland at Boston College uh, Global Leadership Conversation. Um, today, we are really honored to have with us uh, Minister Diane Dodds, um, Minister for the Economy in Northern Ireland, and she's going to be talking about her work um, and her leadership um, in economic recovery uh, from the COVID uh, crisis. But before we introduce the minister, I'd like to introduce our partner in this program, uh, the director of the Northern Ireland Bureau, Andrew Elliott. Andrew. Thank you, Bob. Just to say it's been a real pleasure working with you and in, 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 in collaboration with the Global Leadership Institute on this series, looking at leadership in Northern Ireland. And of course, our initial focus has been on uh, leaders in government here, uh, where to use an expression maybe quoted recently by President Joe Biden, we're very used to working across the aisle uh, in that the Northern Ireland executive, of course, is drawn from right across the political spectrum and involves collaborative decision-making and some of the most challenging issues that society faces in, in 2021. So I'm really particularly delighted today that we have Diane Dodds, who is our Minister for the Economy, uh, and she's taken time out of her busy schedule to join us today. Uh, Diane has a ministerial portfolio that for any economy minister is extremely wide ranging uh, in that she covers not just the economy, but also further in higher education and of course a wide range of issues, including energy, uh, tourism, and, and also very fundamentally dealing with the challenges of the pandemic and, and the impact that that has had on the Northern Ireland economy. Diane was first elected uh, to the Northern Ireland Assembly for the Democratic Unionist Party in 2003, when she then moved to the European Parliament uh, as a member of the European Parliament in 2009 until the UK left the EU in 2020. My last posting was in Brussels, so I was really pleased to have the chance to get to know Diane extremely well, particularly through those really challenging times when Brexit was being negotiated. And Diane, as an independent in the parliament, had a very uh, significant role in engaging with decision makers uh, around the shaping uh, of the Brexit process itself. Um, Diane's husband, Nigel, was made a peer in 2020, so I, I'm very conscious that I should perhaps uh, reference the fact that uh, Diane is now Lady Dodds of Duncairn. I hope I've correctly uh, described that, Diane. It's, it's been a, it's a real <laughs> pleasure to introduce her as well. And I want to say this one more thing because we've talked a little bit about Europe already. I know that Diane has a really long-standing interest in the United States 
and has spent a lot of time engaging with and being in the United States. Uh, and I, I, although we're we're online today and everything is virtual, my money is on Diane being one of the first ministers to be back in the United States whenever that becomes possible because of the interest she has taken and she played a really important leadership role last year during St. Patrick's Day in being here when, when it was impossible for, for, for other ministers to attend. So I'll hand back to you now, Bob, to, to talk to Diane. I very much look forward to the discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you very much, Andrew. And thank you for your partnership on this, this program. Um, it's been exciting to work with you um, to deliver this third in installment. Um, as Andrew has already uh, told us, the minister has a, a long political history, uh, both up in Stormont and in the European Union. Um, and I'm excited to dig into this. Uh, thank you, Minister, for joining us. Um, just to point out uh, to everybody who's joining us, um, and if you haven't joined us before, uh, please feel free to ask questions. Um, and you can do that via the uh, Q&A function and the chat function um, here in Zoom. So. Um, please ask those and I'll try to get those um, across as you, if you have joined us before, you probably know that we don't get to them all, uh, but I'll do my best. Um, Andrew's already um, minister outlined uh, your political um, heritage a little bit, but I think a, a key part of that was that, that um, and this is pretty phenomenal, you spent 11 years um, in Brussels um, and have only this past year returned um, to, to the executive um, as the MLA for the upper band and the minister for the economy. I think maybe we just take a step back from that first. Um, you know, what motivated you to enter politics? You, you went to the Queens University Belfast and took an interest in it. Uh, but how did you go from, you know, that moment uh, graduating from QUB and then, you know, taking the decision to, to run as an MLA and, and represent West Belfast? Well, Thank you um, so much, Bob, uh, and to Andrew as well for the very kind introduction uh, today. Um, I, have, I have not met you before, Bob, and I do look forward, uh, as Andrew said, I, I would like to be one of the first ministers back on the plane, and I look forward to catching up uh, at another time uh, when I'm back uh, in the United States. Um, I've known Andrew for a very long time um, through um, his work um, at, at Stormont um, in the Northern Ireland government, um, but also because uh, our times in Brussels uh, coincided. I um, probably was always interested in politics. Um, I uh, obviously come from a unionist tradition um, and I've always been intensely interested in the union but also just in, if I could say it, like bread and butter politics we talk about here, the everyday politics. Um, I joined um, the Democratic Unionist Party when I was at university. And those were very testing times in Northern Ireland and quite testing times to be a member of the Democratic Unionist Party. And I don't say that lightly. Um, and uh, then proceeded to become a teacher, have a family, um, and uh, then uh, in 2003 was elected for West Belfast. That was a, a, a quite a momentous um, election because in West Belfast, I was the first unionist representative to represent that constituency. Six members from the assembly would represent that constituency in uh, the Northern Ireland uh, government. 
um, and five of them were nationalists or Republicans, and I was the one unionist. And that was the first time in 2003, since 1974, that a unionist had been elected there. So it was very, um, a very exciting time. And from there, we went. I went on to the European Parliament, which um, was again intensely interesting. Um, particularly, as Andrew said, um, after uh, 2016 and the referendum and the, the negotiations to leave the European Union. So what motivates me over all these long years in politics, I suppose it's like everything else. It's the sense of trying to do better and trying to do good. Um, and since I came back to Northern Ireland from Brussels, um, to be in uh, the local assembly here and to take on my role as the finance minister. Um, I, I was able to go to the States once over the St. Patrick's Day celebrations last year. We came home um, and then virtually um, everything has um, been dominated by COVID, the pandemic, the health crisis, the economic uh, implications of all of that. And those are extremely severe and tough. Um, for all of our communities here, um, both I know in the States and uh, here in Northern Ireland. Those are really tough times. Yeah, the St. Um, Patrick's Day last year, it's, um, it's, been, it's been quite a whirlwind. I remember, of course, St. Yeah. Patrick's Day was right at that cusp between um, lockdown or, or not. You know, is it too dangerous to travel or isn't? Um, mm -hmm. You know, last year when you were out, I mean, what... How did you find the audience that you did meet? And I, I understandably it was an unusual year. Um, not everybody was there. But you know, when you met um, you know political and economic and social leaders in the you know from the United States at, at the St. Patrick's Day events, what were you hearing from them? What kinds of things were they talking with you about? Well, I think that everyone was very interested that after um, that period of time when devolution when Northern Ireland did not have its own government um, and the re-establishment of government here in uh, on the 11th of January last year. People were very intensely interested as to how that would work, how it was going to work, um, what the things that we were going to do um, and our connections with our wider markets and our wider world. And of course, um, for us, North America is an extremely important uh, partner. Um, we have more um, firms who come uh, from North America for uh, investing in Northern Ireland than any other part of the world. We have very strong cultural and family connections with North America. So I had some wonderful times with some uh, tourism leaders um, in North America. I met some um, political leaders um, and um, I really had really good engagement about Northern Ireland, about uh, what we want to do to recreate and, and grow the economy, um, how um, the local uh, government here would work on community relations, um, how we would attract tourism, and really to tell the message that the Northern Ireland that um, I grew up in is not the Northern Ireland of today, um, and that I think as, as one um, leader, um, one CEO from a company actually from um, uh, North America said to me the other day, the Northern Ireland economy is constantly reinventing itself and reorientating itself and really um, attracting 
companies who are at the cutting edge of some uh, very exciting opportunities, particularly in the digital sphere. So, um, you know, we had a great time. It's very disappointing that I wasn't able to come back, but I look forward to be, being back because this is Northern Ireland's centenary year. Northern Ireland is 100 years old this year. Um, so I look forward to being back. Um, I look forward uh, to promoting Northern Ireland as a good place to do business, to work, to live, to visit. Um, this year as well, we're um, opening in uh, my hometown here, um, a new uh, visitor attraction. Um, it is the visitor attraction where um, the Game of Thrones was uh, filmed. It was just filmed literally just about five minutes from my house. So that is going to open this year and you can come and, and we hope to welcome visitors from across the world again when the time is right. Well, hopefully the, uh, the pandemic will recede soon um, and we'll, we'll all be able to travel again. It's been um, a little over a year since I've been to Northern Ireland. I miss it uh, immensely. I always have a great time when I go and, and there's obviously lots of deep connections uh, for Boston College and, and for people in Boston to, to, to Northern Ireland and Belfast in particular. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the Game of Thrones, our students, um, it's always a highlight for them when they travel to Ireland to study, uh, is to visit um, the, the Game of Thrones filming sites. So um, I, I haven't actually seen the show myself, but our students do love it. Um, we'll come back to, to the, the North American piece um, in, 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 you know, in the course of this conversation. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to, to get into the, the period just before you came back um, to uh, Stormont at the time you spent in Brussels. You spent 11 years as an MEP in Brussels. Um, you supported Brexit, but you, but you didn't support the deal uh, that was developed uh, you know, around the protocol. And, um, so maybe you can explain that position a little bit, uh, especially to our American audience, because I think there probably is some confusion uh, in the United States about what it means to oppose the deal and also support um, you know, the UK leaving uh, the European Union? Well, um, I spent 11 years in the European Parliament um, and through that I met many, many people, um, was exposed to many cultures, languages. It's an intensely interesting um, and different legislature um, to be a part of. And that was a great privilege because Northern Ireland only elects three people to go and represent uh, Northern Ireland in the European Parliament. So to be one of only three people um, and to be entrusted with that was an extremely um, huge, um, I used to say it was the greatest privilege of my life, but probably also the greatest responsibility. That is until I became the economy minister and we had a global pandemic and huge economic difficulties. Um, so I like a challenge, always like a challenge. Um, so I, I voted um, and to leave the European Union um, because I think that the United Kingdom is a great country, that the United Kingdom can manage um, always uh, on its own. My party has always been uh, Eurosceptic um, and there were many areas that decisions were made that fundamentally affected um, the lives of people in Northern Ireland, that really only three people out of 750 in a parliament um, could actually bring so much influence to bear on. So I voted to leave, and I think that that was a valid democratic choice. 
But the settlement that our Prime Minister um, has opted for, I think, is very difficult for Northern Ireland. So we have the, the general agreement to leave, the trade and cooperation agreement, but we also have what's known as the Northern Ireland Protocol. And that protocol essentially sets up significant barriers to trade between us and our greatest market in GB. For Northern Ireland, and I think it's an easy way of describing it, we do more trade in the GB market, in the Great Britain market, than we do in um, the whole of Europe, the whole of the Republic of Ireland and the rest of the world added together. So it's the most significant market that Northern Ireland has, both for selling into and for buying from. And the protocol, that element of the deal that deals with Northern Ireland has presented huge difficulties for Northern Ireland um, in that respect. So I, I, I voted to leave. I think that's a, a valid choice that we can, can do. But the protocol represents some significant barriers to trade with um, the rest of the United Kingdom. However, it does open up some other opportunities because we have unfettered trade with the European Union. So we can trade freely with Europe. Um, and I think they're in present, and as well as trading freely into the United Kingdom. Um, and I think therein lies some opportunities for investment in Northern Ireland. We will be exploring those in the near future. Okay, that's, that's great. We, we can unpack some of that as we go. Um, there are a few questions coming in to, to Brexit. We can get into a little bit, uh, into that topic a little bit deeper. And then, you know, um, the, the pitch that you're making for Northern Ireland on, on the world economy based on uh, the Brexit deal. But before we do, um, you've already brought up COVID and the challenges that that brought um, as you were stepping into the role of, um, you know, minister for, for the economy. So, you know, w when you came into that role, what were the, I mean, uh, beyond, like through the COVID challenges, what, what were the most significant things that, that were pressing? Obviously, there was an employment crisis and, um, you know, there, there was a, a retail crisis and, and there was crisis in agribusiness and food and, and transport. Um, where did you begin and, and how did you make a priority of, of tasks when you came into the role to respond to that? I think um, the health pandemic has presented challenges on, on a variety of levels. So there's the health challenge. Um, and that health challenge was very, very significant. But I think that there was a very united front from the, the Northern Ireland executive. And remember, the Northern Ireland executive is very unlike any other um, government. It is made up of five different political parties. Those are five different political parties with different views, different outlooks, etc. So uh, when Andrew describes um, the, the kind of way we work, you must get agreement, um, whether you think it, of it being as across the aisle in your context, but you must get agreement across those political parties to do something. So I think there was, on a health um, challenge, there's a general um, agreement that you know, the pandemic had to be dealt with, people's lives had to be protected, and we needed to do the best we could in order to do that. Um, and we continue to, to pretty much uh, be in that space. Um, and currently in Northern Ireland, we have some 
significant restrictions on uh, public life. But, and of course, as being part of the United Kingdom, we have also had huge and significant inputs of, of financial support from the Exchequer in London in order uh, for firms and companies and individuals and families to survive that economic hit to the, their income that almost closing down the economy for a period of time last year um, actually uh, did. So I think that there's the challenge of health, there's the immediate challenge of sustaining business and in that and in sustaining income, we have been greatly helped by the fact that billions of pounds have been pumped into Northern Ireland um, by the Exchequer in London. The third thing it really then is to say that with every period of disruption and challenge comes opportunity. So there has been a period of time where we can reevaluate the economy and certain sectors of our economy are actually powering ahead and doing extremely well. So I'm delighted to tell you that just this week, I welcomed a new company from Massachusetts into Northern Ireland, creating 70 jobs and uh, creating a, a new tech hub uh, for their company. So our digital companies are really powering ahead. Um, many of our companies whose parent companies are in the States are working completely at home um, and productivity is up, um, innovation is up um, and they are winning work in their global companies um, for Northern Ireland. So with every period of challenge, there comes opportunity. And certainly for our digital sector, that has been an opportunity. And every time I talk to a new company, we welcomed another new company from Boston a few months ago. And every time I talk to a new company um, that comes to come amongst us in this sector, they talk about the innovation, the tech hub, the creativity, and the skills and the connection with the universities, the, the way that um, that research and development is done in conjunction with universities. And I like to think that the Northern Ireland um, scene has been um, kind of um, small enough and nimble enough to change in the face of great challenges. So, you know, some of our bigger tech companies employing thousands of people successfully work from home and are really doing very, very well. And that's uh, brilliant. I think um, recently Belfast was voted the second best city in the United Kingdom um, to do business um, for tech companies. That's amazing. We're also exploring, um, you know, our the, the green economy, the digit as, as well, so that um, we're not only just looking at sustainable environments, but we're looking at being pioneering leaders in uh, the green economy. So I think there's a level of challenge, um, but you know, there's also um, opportunity. That's great. And, and um, in February, we'll be welcoming the president of uh, Queen's University on a, um, uh, a similar uh, conversation. So we hear more about the, the collaboration that your department will have um, you know, is having with, with universities and its role in innovation and, and developing the economy. I just want to go back um, one step um, to you, you. You talked about the the funds you received from the Exchequer, 
Um, I think there were about 11 million pounds that came from the shared prosperity fund this year. And, uh, but then there was a little bit of a debate about the shortfall uh, from the European Union funding and, and you were looking for additional resources to fund projects. Where are you in that conversation? Have you been able to find the additional resources that you've been looking for? Um, well, the answer at the moment is yes. Um, um, but do we have the long term? Because leaving the European Union, looking and, and, and working at the kind of programs that we've become accustomed to also means that within a UK context, we have to set up new programs. Um, and my challenge is, is to convince uh, our national government um, that they're leveling up agenda for the whole of the United Kingdom. In other words, they want to bring prosperity to all parts of the United Kingdom means that um, Northern Ireland must be funded adequately and appropriately. So um, the challenge in the short term um, has been um, sorted, mitigated, whatever word you want to use. Um, but the challenge in the long term is to create new funds that actually really work for the United Kingdom. One of the greatest problems with Europe, and it's a problem, I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, the tension that you see bes, between state government and, and, and central government um, is, is a problem that you see often in the European Union, where um, decisions are made that are, that are made at a very high level, so decisions made in Brussels, how that translate in, into local conditions can sometimes be very, very difficult. I believe that decisions are always best made closest to people because they will understand those decisions, they will have input into those decisions, and they will more appropriately reflect the needs of those areas. But it was very difficult in the European Union to get an agriculture policy that fitted Greece and Northern Ireland or that fitted Sweden and Northern Ireland. Um, and therefore, I want an, a UK agriculture policy that fits the United Kingdom, but allows for regional divergence. Um, and it, it's the same with the kind of the shared prosperity fund that replaced um, the European um, ASF and ERDF funding that, that we would have had. Uh, um, yeah, that's a very interesting um, sort of challenge that uh, many governments face between um, centralized and, and local and um, how the two interact. Um, in terms of the, the, the local decision making, um, last June, I think it was, you stood up um, the economic advisory group again, and there's some very, you know, very eminent people on that. And I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting of panel people. Um, and they've been focused on some of the things you've already been talking about, challenges you know, to increasing productivity um, and, and the rate of high paying jobs, um, and then capitalizing on the skills development um, you know, that exists in Northern Ireland. Um, you've mentioned the digital economy and, and we could talk a lot more about that. Um, but what other areas um, are you, you looking to grow? You've mentioned the, the green economy. Um, are there other areas that you, your government is, uh, or you, your office is focused on? Well, yes, thank you. Um, last year, um, in, the, in the middle of our COVID um, pandemic, we brought out our Rebuilding a Stronger Economy document. Um, and that um, helped us to focus our minds on areas that we see that are areas of growth. 
As I've mentioned, Northern Ireland is 100 years old this year. 100 years ago, we built ships, we had rope works, we made linen, we were leading the world in all of those things. Today, we're leading the world in cyber, um, in the digital economy, um, and I want them for us to focus our strengths on those areas of the economy that are for the future, that will really help us to future-proof the economy and build that economy for tomorrow. So we're looking at further uh, um, innovation and, and, and uh, expansion of our digital economy. We're looking at health and life sciences, because actually um, one of the, the benefits of, of, of where we are now is that our regulatory system will be recognized in the UK, it will be recognized in the European Union. It will be a good place for health and life sciences to do business. Um, and it, we are focusing on the green economy. How can we actually gain um, market edge um, by having that sustainable environment, by having that green economy? How can we bring prosperity through uh, the green economy? And the other element of this that ties it all together is the investment in skills. When I talk to companies that come to Northern Ireland, and I often ask them, you know, you could have gone anywhere. Why did you come to Northern Ireland? You have no link with Northern Ireland. Why did you come? And they always inevitably talk about skills. And they talk about the, the really good pipeline of really high skilled young people. They talk about our programs of collaboration between universities and uh, business in order to improve and develop skills. They talk about what we call our assured skills academies. So many of our businesses will come and say to us, you know, we have a shortage of skills in a particular area or we want to develop skills in a particular area. And in collaboration with our universities, um, we will set up skills academies that respond to the needs of uh, the economy and of the businesses that we are dealing with. So we want to look forward. We want to build the economy of the future, um, and we want to focus on the skills of our people. These are strengths that we already have, but we think that we can grow and be really, really uh, leading and world-class in. It, 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 um, it's certainly very interesting work that you've been doing. I noticed um, during the pandemic, your office funded uh, 400 uh, positions or 400 offers for people to take up online upskilling um, at with Queen's University. I mean, is that something, and, and the areas that those um, programs were in were related to growth areas uh, for the Northern yeah. Ireland economy. So it wasn't just, um, you know, at random across the university it was very focused. Um, is that something you see as a model that other states might develop as, you know, a means for helping to exit uh, from the COVID crisis and, and the COVID economy? Or is this something kind of going back to your tensions around the central and, and the local? Is this really um, about learning uh, for Northern Ireland in, in, in kind of a micro way? I think it's a, it's a, a really um, useful um, model that others can replicate. The real issue here is to get skills that match the needs in the short term, but in the longer term, to make sure that the economy, the skills and the economy match and that we are 
driving the two forward together. And that's a hugely, hugely um, challenging but important uh, way of working. So I'm about to uh, release a new skills strategy. I would like to look at, at um, what we are, we are describing as a digital spine for Northern Ireland, so that our, our young, so that children in school um, learn to code, they, that they really become really focused on the digitization, which will underpin everything that we do in the future, um, but that they do it as part of the, and as part of the natural way that they do things and, and, and part of our, our natural, I mean, for me, it wasn't, I'm way too old for all of that, but it's it, that it, this is part of what they do. This is just the, the, their way of working. So that's a really important thing that we do. We want to match skills to future-proof the economy, but we also want to be nimble and flexible enough to be able to respond to the needs of industry by setting up the Assured Skills Academies to respond to that. We have a really, really amazing advanced manufacturing sector in Northern Ireland. Um, one of, um, I was talking to a company recently in Northern Ireland and their fastest and uh, growing market is Texas. Um, and of course they're supplying huge machinery and so on into the economy uh, there because um, of the construction and, and, and crushing and industry. Um, so one of the things that they came and said to us, well, look, we, we need more welders. We need people with these skills to really drive forward um, this um, sector. We're currently running a number of assured skills academies in welding. So they're not just for the young graduates. They're also for the young apprentices who will learn a trade and do something really, really well. So it's about being nimble. It's about responding. It's about using... Um, COVID, that terrible disruptor that it has been, but to accelerate something that's actually good and making sure that the economy is more nimble um, and more focused on, 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 on how we progress um, for uh, the future. Uh, there's a question that's um, come in from a, a person here in Boston who works in uh, business development and, and helping companies uh, grow both locally, but also um, specifically in, in Northern Ireland. And it's, it's it, the question is basically too much, is this too much of a good thing? Um, she, uh, she's asking about the, the tech talent and, and the wages. Um, and she's, she, she says that, you know, what she's noticed is that a lot of international companies have been incentivized by InvestNI to come to Belfast, but sometimes the, the, the local companies are having trouble competing with them for tech and, and uh, for tech talent and based on, uh, wages. Is this something that, um, you know, your office has noticed? If, if so, you know, how are you looking to balance that? InvestNI has done outstanding work in promoting FDI. You know, what are you doing kind of locally to, to match that? Well, I mean, there will always be a tension um, in the economy. And for many, that's very, very healthy. Because um, for many people who particularly work in the tech sector, um, their, their particular part of the economy has really healthy uh, competition um, and pressures within it. But from a policy perspective, um, the really important thing for me is to look at how we match skills to the growing needs of the economy. So therefore, 
I'm responsible for the economy, but I'm also responsible for universities and further education. I'm looking at, you know, um, how do we match um, university life, university work, university research and innovation to the needs of the economy? That's massively, massively important. Um, and, and, and actually really exciting, I think, um, to do that. Can I mention one of the things that um, we've been working on our, with our national government on is the creation of city deals. So currently in the next year in Northern Ireland, um, I will um, avail of about 500 million pounds of funding for city deals for Northern Ireland. That funding is then going to be matched by the Stormont Executive and by local councils so that we will be having a rolling program of investment into the economy. And that investment is going to be in research and innovation. It's going to be in the digital economy. It's going to be in advanced manufacturing. It's going to be in health and life sciences. Um, and it's going to be in tourism. Um, and, and those are the areas um, that, that, uh, that will focus on. So, and that is new money that is coming into the economy. Um, and it, is, it will help to create the skills, it will help to create innovation, and it will drive um, a more competitive um, and I hope productive um, outcome for the economy. And at the bottom of it all is better outcomes for people and families. So there's always a healthy tension in, in, in the economy. There's always a need to um, get the skills balance right. Um, and of course, I do actually think, and I attended the Invest Northern Ireland uh, board meeting today um, and discussed with them our plans for the next 12 months. Um, and therefore, um, looking for and securing uh, foreign direct investment is hugely important. And that collaborative tension as well between what you're doing in North America and what we're doing here is really significant in driving some of those companies forward. That, that's interesting. And um, in, you, you referenced um, InvestNI just there, uh, and you talked about EverQuote earlier, and, and InvestNI played a significant role in um, those 70 positions. At the same time, um, you know, earlier this year, Caterpillar um, trimmed its workforce by about 700. So, and this is, a, this is something that we see in Massachusetts, see all over the place. You know, heavy industry might be trimming and, and knowledge economy uh, might be growing. Uh, but the knowledge economy is growing maybe slower than you might be losing jobs in, in industry and other places. I mean, is there a way you think that your office can make up for job losses, you know, through the strategy? Or is there additional work that needs to be done beyond kind of what you've already outlined? Well, there's always a, a, a huge uh, amount to do. Um, and one of the things that perhaps COVID has, has shown us is that long winding supply chains are more difficult to manage in a health pandemic um, than, uh, than we previously would have known. Um, the Caterpillar um, example that, that you saw is, is really a multinational company realigning, restructuring, reorganizing um, and going closer um, to markets. What's really interesting is that the part that Caterpillar keeps in Northern Ireland is those parts that require really, really high skilled people to do very specific bespoke solutions for companies across the world. 
And those are the high value, high paying jobs that actually stayed in Northern Ireland because those require the, the knowledge, the research, the innovation and the talent. Um, and what was really interesting was that that's the part that, 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 that actually stayed in Northern Ireland. And that's still a very large part of their workforce, um, but it's one of the, the, the really high skilled ends of their workforce that's producing very, very bespoke solutions for uh, clients across the world. I think um, many politicians around the world are struggling with the same issues of supply chain management and, and uh, the location of multinational suits. So Northern Ireland is not alone in this. Um, in terms of the supply chain um, management, uh, you know, Brexit um, became real uh, over the past year and the, the Northern Ireland Protocol was introduced. Um, there were in the immediate after effects um, you know, of the new year, there was, a, there was perhaps a supply chain issue. Um, you know, some supermarkets were having trouble supplying goods. Um, we read reports about fishermen having difficulty getting their product to market um, and, and some other um, issues. You yourself uh, you know, pointed out that it's been difficult to help businesses prepare for, for Brexit when um, you know, so much came so late, the agreement came so late. So you know, it was difficult to prepare people for EU customs forms and, and to help companies. Um, where what's the current situation right now? Uh, maybe um, you know has that improved at all, or is there you know is that going to continue to improve, or you know is there an ongoing challenge you think around some of these um, supply chain issues? Well, I think you know, and I think many of the people on this call will know that um, for business really to succeed and do well, they like certainty. So um, the uncertainty of a deal and the detail of that deal only becoming known at the very last minute was very, very difficult. Um, so hence and therein lay some of the challenges in the first few weeks of this deal. There's no doubt that some of it will settle. Some of it will provide Northern Ireland with quite a unique position. Um, and other parts of it will just continue um, to be difficult uh, to manage, although people will become slicker and I have absolutely no doubt that the market will adapt um, to uh, those conditions. So I think the biggest challenge that we've had is the late deal and the fact that um, the protocol itself gives us um, that kind of uh, problem with uh, trade between GB and Northern Ireland. It's interesting the trade between Northern Ireland and GB is flowing reasonably well. And that is because that is in the gift of the government, our national government in London, uh, to make sure that that flows reasonably well. So we have one uh, area where it is flowing reasonably well. The difficulties lie with uh, the restrictions that the European Union have put into it um, and the compliance with single market rules, which means that trade from GB to Northern Ireland is not frictionless and is subject to customs rules, rules of origin, um, the kind of thing that you would uh, expect uh, in this area. So um, the lateness of it um, and the difficulty of that um, from a GBNI perspective, but the part of it that is economically attractive is the fact that Northern Ireland has that unfettered access to GB and it has that unfettered access to the European Union. 
um, we, one of the, uh, the participants in the webinar um, is asking about your, your view and the protocol. Um, you know, the, the participant says that the protocol uh, was established to, to protect the principles of the Good Friday Agreement. So they, what they're looking, um, what their question really is, is, you know, what's the alternative to protocol or is there an alternative to, to uh, the protocol? Well, I suppose I think that many people misunderstand um, the um, Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement set up by a very complex checks of um, um, rights and checks and balances to make sure that the two communities here in Northern Ireland could feel equally valued um, and have equal rights. And one of those things um, that I think um, is really important and perhaps um, I think that many people misunderstood was the fact that for unionism, there was no consent um, for the protocol um, and the way that the protocol is being implemented. In fact, I'll go further in that I, the British government at the behest of the European Union have actually changed the consent mechanism in the Belfast Agreement um, in order to deal with the protocol. So in our local assembly, um, if uh, there is a, a contentious issue that requires uh, consent, then consent must be given from both communities. And actually um, what uh, the government have now done is to make sure uh, that it is just by a majority vote um, that in four years time, for example, uh, when we come to review the protocol, it would be a majority vote. It would not, and it does upset and is contrary to the terms of uh, the Good Friday Agreement. But you know, one of the things um, I think we must honestly um, realize um, is that we have to deal with the difficulties of the protocol. I didn't vote for it, I don't want it, and I don't really like it. I think that barriers between us and our biggest market are very, very difficult for the Northern Ireland economy. But we will have to mitigate against the problems and look for opportunity. Um, there are a number of questions here that, that extend uh, on the Brexit um, and, and, and the fallout from Brexit. There's one here. Um, referencing a, a poll in the Sunday Times um, that showed the majority of people wanted a border poll in the next 10 years. Um, and so the question here is, is what's your pitch to those um, people who are unsure about where they would sit on the, on the poll uh, to remain in the union? Um, so, I mean, I think some of your arguments are already been made around the unique position that Northern Ireland now uh, occupies between the European Union and, and, and the, the UK economy. Uh, but, you know, is there is there more to an argument about um, for, for those people who want to remain in the union? Well, you know, I am a unionist by choice and by conviction. And that's hugely important to me. I think that the union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is a hugely successful, long-standing union. And of course, with Northern Ireland's centenary, um, we will celebrate that union again this year. Um, in uh, its forms. The union is diverse, um, it is uh, pluralist, it is multicultural, it is many, many things, and it provides huge benefits for me as someone who believes in that union. 
Um, and for me, that is a cause um, that, you know, one of the reasons I became involved in politics, because I intensely believe in that union. I also believe in devolution. So I believe that I'm, I'm and the DUP has always been a devolutionist party. So we will always believe that power is best exercised closest to the people. But with that uh, sovereignty that rests um, in, um, in, in London. But I also believe in a union of respect um, and respect for um, myself as a unionist and respect for my neighbours. So what um, is my pitch? Well, first of all, I, this is me. This is me. I am fundamentally a unionist and that is one of the abiding political philosophies that drives my political uh, well-being. But I see the union as not just being diverse, multicultural, but there are huge benefits of belonging to the fifth largest economy in the world. That has been demonstrated over and over again with the COVID pandemic. We have had um, billions pumped into Northern Ireland uh, from the Exchequer in London so that our people could live um, and survive in the most extreme and difficult of circumstances. So I believe it's financially advantageous. Our health service is another reason um, to um, support the union. So I, I, I want a union that um, delivers for everyone. And I want a Northern Ireland that is stable and prosperous within the union. I understand that not everybody shares my view. That's fine. Um, but I also want those views to be challenged democratically. And uh, that's, that's uh, very, very, very important. Um, and I think fundamentally, just if I could finish with this, um, the Northern Ireland that I grew up in, the Belfast that I went to university in, is not the Northern Ireland of today. It is a much different place. It is, a, it is um, an incredibly different place. Um, and I think if people came to Belfast um, and to um, other parts of Northern Ireland, I think that their views of Northern Ireland would be challenged somewhat. Um, it, it certainly changed dramatically o o over the uh, the past number of years. Um, you know, I live for uh, for a number of years in Dublin, but I would travel um, twice a week up to to Belfast, and I saw the border uh, posts come down over time, and and how things changed um, so dramatically. Um, and uh, so that's of course uh, quite exciting. You know, the new decade, um, new approach document um, committed everyone to keeping the executive functioning. Obviously, did the history of the, the executive um, since the cessation of uh, the troubles, you know, has been on, on and off. It doesn't always sit. I mean, in your judgment, what is the health of the executive now? Is it functioning um, as it should, or does more need to be done to ensure that, that the power sharing system there is stable and delivering? Well, I think that um, there is a huge commitment to making politics and to making uh, Northern Ireland work for the benefit of its people. I actually don't believe that um, people are in the executive um, in a destructive or uh, any of those kind of ways that you want to describe it. It has generally been a constructive, positive engagement. Um, I think people want to make um, things better. And I think that 
and I, I, I have often said this, I've often reflected on this. Um, if we had had a COVID pandemic, if we had had the huge challenges for our society without a local government, I fear to think of the outcome. And I think that that kind of huge, huge challenge has made people rise above many of the, the issues um, and um, having um, to, to make a five-party executive work. There is no doubt about it that these things are difficult. We would be foolish um, and it would be utter folly not to recognise that. You will recognise how difficult it is to work for consensus. And when I want to drive a policy forward, I have to work for consensus across five political parties. That's, that's quite a challenge. Um, so no one is underestimating the difficulty, but I think that that kind of constructive engagement, that effort to make life better, that effort to deal with the pandemic um, has been, I just, fear for where Northern Ireland would be had, had that not been the case. Have we done everything wonderfully well? Time will tell. Um, but um, there has been a huge effort uh, on behalf of people in Northern Ireland during a difficult time. Um, Minister, we're just about out of time, but before we go, I, I did want to get your um, insight on the new relationship that will develop um, between Northern Ireland and the United States under the Biden administration. Um, Nick Mulvaney is um, no longer the, the, you know, the, the, the special envoy, um, perhaps mm -hmm. there'll be a new special envoy soon. Um, but what do you anticipate um, the Biden administration being, how do you anticipate them being helpful um, in Northern Ireland? What is it that they can do that, that would best support the work of the executive and, and the people of Northern Ireland? Well, I, of course, um, look forward uh, to President Biden's administration. I wish him every success um, for that administration. I mean, it, it will be hugely, hugely challenging. Um, but then I think that governments across the world are hugely challenged um, in the things that they have to do. So I wish them every success. I'm looking forward to, for example, uh, welcoming um, the, the new Chancellor of Queen's University, Hillary Clinton, uh, when uh, she is able to make her first visit uh, to Belfast as the Chancellor of Queen's University. So the links between um, the wider uh, Democratic and, and Biden administration are very, very strong with Northern Ireland, and I look forward to working uh, with them. In America, the states are a huge, huge um, economic, cultural, uh, and, and huge family ties um, between us. And I think that uh, it'll, it will, uh, we will be able to drive things forward. And as I say, um, I think that many, um, and I will take many opportunities um, as soon as I can to uh, come over um, and maybe meet you in person and, and talk in person uh, on these things. Um, and uh, within the next, uh, I think, number of weeks, I'm going to meet, uh, be meeting uh, in our virtual world that we live in. Um, at the moment, uh, a number of North American tour operators um, who are still taking bookings for Northern Ireland for 2021, um, who want to know that we're open, ready to do business, and ready to welcome many more people uh, to uh, our shores. So 
you know, I wish the administration well. I look forward to working with them. Um, I think that we can work together uh, to do things uh, for uh, all people here in Northern Ireland. Thank you, Minister. Uh, we are just about out of time. We've taken up an hour of your time and I really do appreciate it. I'm sorry if I didn't get to um, the questions. There are a couple of other questions that remain here, outstanding questions. Um, and I think the only way to settle this, Minister, is to have you here at Boston College to answer these um, in, in person with, with an audience. We do well look forward to the day when you can come to Chestnut Hill um, at, at Boston College and visit with us here. Uh, we very much like that. And the, and the door is always open to you and your colleagues. Uh, I wanna thank everyone for um, attending today. Uh, we have a, a couple of more, um, three more webinars that are scheduled in the near term. Uh, the next uh, Northern Ireland at Boston College um, conversation will be with the, the president of Queens University on, on February 24th. Um, in the interim, we'll be speaking with Minister Colin Brophy, um, the Minister for State with Responsibility for Diaspora on February 9th. Um, and then following that, we will have the Speaker uh, of the Scottish Parliament uh, on with us. So we will be um, investigating some of these issues of, of devolution and, and the relationship uh, between the different um, political voices um, across Ireland and um, Great Britain. Uh, thank you again, Minister, for joining us. It was, it was a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for um, highlighting the, the good work that's happening in Northern Ireland and, and the role um, that you're playing in helping to um, facilitate the growth of its its economy. And, and, and then also being honest with us about where some of those challenges uh, might lie for, for you and your colleagues. Um, thank you again. Thank you. It was very, very nice of you to invite me. I see I'm, I am in some very um, illustrious company. We appreciate it. Uh, we hope to talk to you again <laughs> soon. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you yeah, later. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today as we work to enhance Boston College's presence and impact in the world by building trust, community, and dialogue. Please visit our website at bc.edu for more information on today's speaker, and follow us on Twitter, at GLIATBC, or find us on LinkedIn at Global Leadership Institute at Boston College. Thank you.